Good morning. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. That's from James 5, 8. Um, I am working my way still through the Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective of 1995 because there is a difference, believe it or not, depending on the year. Um, the article itself is called Truth, but it deals more with uh, taking oaths. Uh, and I will get into that, but when I hear truth, when referring to the Bible, the first place I go is John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, well, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I am going to be spending most of my time talking about oaths, but I think there is a greater truth that needs to be addressed before I say anything else. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. Those are words out of Jesus' own mouth. As Christians, this is fundamental. There is no way to the Father but Jesus Christ. Also, um, I got this beautiful thing, and it isn't mine, actually. I just didn't give it back to Wendy yet. Um, Vacation Bible School is coming up, and if you look in your bulletin, you can see the dates there. Vacation Bible School is from June, <laughs> June 27th through July 1st. Is that correct? Okay. And she wrote up a mission statement. I'd like to share this mission statement with you because I think as we're praying for VBS, if you're not praying for B VBS though, be praying for VBS. You may have never thought about it. But a lot of kids that come to Vacation Bible School, this is their church for the entire year. I want you to think about that. A lot of kids in the community, it's the only time they actually go to church all year long. So as we're going into this, we want to make as big an impact as we can on these kids in a positive way in just a couple days. We're planting seeds, okay? But here is the Valley View VBS mission statement for this year at least. We as a church family will present the gospel of salvation to children that attend our VBS. We as a church family will share the truth of God's word with the children that attend our VBS. We as a church family will welcome all of the children in our community into a safe, nurturing, and loving environment where they can learn about God so it impacts their lives. I mean, we're going to play games and have snacks too. But when we think about Vacation Bible School, this is the point. It's not free daycare. It isn't just something nice that happens in the community, right? This is maybe the most powerful evangelistic thing we get to do all year, and it's become so mechanical sometimes that we forget that. So please, if you can be a part of it, especially if you love kids, if you, for whatever reason, do not like children, if they annoy you, they give you a headache, and it sends you praying in the other room. Don't volunteer to teach, please. You can still help. You can still pray. You can work in the kitchen with the, with the grown-ups. Whatever you need to do. But we talked about that in vacation, or in vacation Bible school. See, it's in my brain. In uh, Sunday school this morning, that God wires us differently. We have different talents. We have different giftings. Right? And as Wendy brought up this morning, children are genuine people who see through your facade better than adults do. So you may know scripture, but if you don't love kids, they know it. And if you're lying to them about liking them, what are they going to believe from you? No one cares what you know until they know that you care. That's my favorite teacherism either. I got that from a retired middle school teacher who became my college professor, a guy named, uh, oh goodness, is it Jim Daly? I love that guy. He knows Dave Wanker pretty well. But uh, he told us that. That was the first thing he taught us in his college class was nobody cares what you know unless they know that you care. And I've seen that that's especially true at church. No one cares what you know unless you care. All right. Um, I was going to say I'll get off of my soapbox. No, I'm just going to jump to a different one. Um, 
But please be a part of Vacation Bible School. It's a lot of work. Not chipping in and doing Bible school. The planning of Bible school is a lot of work. And it's not a little work either during the week, but it's the fun stuff. And it'll be frustrating. And it'll be fun. And there'll be at least one kid that drives you nuts. And he's going to be your favorite one by the end of the week. Trust me, I've been teaching a little while. It's how it works. Although this year I had a clear favorite, and I never had that in my life before. But my daughter was in my class, so... So I took extra pains to treat her stricter than everybody else in the room because she is my favorite. I've never had a kid be my favorite before. And I just like her more. She reminds me of her mother, which is actually a compliment. I know that that's the the butt of many, many jokes. Anyhow. So we are going to be talking about truth. And like I said, this article actually deals more with swearing oaths. And if you just focus on that, oh, don't swear oaths, then it becomes another rule that you can follow. Good job. Why don't swear oaths is what I was thinking about that. And uh, I'm actually going to start with Jesus, which is a great place for any Christian to start. In Matthew 5. Verses 33 through 37. Let's go there. Also, something strange is going to happen next week. Just a little interjection here. Um, I'm going to be switching versions of the Bible next week. It's still the Bible. I've been reading from New King James, though, for about a year, year and a half. I'm, my brother got me another Bible. My brother's been sending me sending me Bibles. I love it. Uh, but I have a new preacher Bible that's in NIV, so the wording's going to change slightly next week. It's still the Scriptures. It's still a good translation. I just wanted to tell you, if you'd be like, wait, that no longer matches up, because a lot of you have New King James also. More of you have NIV, so you're going to be like, wait a minute. That's exactly what my Bible says this week. There are some people that went NASB, though, and they will always be. My father's one, Sue Bell's another one. Something about NASB, that's that's their Bible. ESV people are the same. I'm making a lot of words with very little meaning right now. Forgive me. I'm going to get back to Scripture because that's my job. All right, verse 33. Again, you've heard it said, it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, nor by God, or for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for what Ever is more than these is from the evil one. And I had to think about that because I've sworn a lot of oaths in my life. Which is different than a pledge, but only slightly. Right? Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Swear on a stack of Bibles. Most recesses involve people swearing on their living mother's grave or on a side, swear on a stack of Bibles. It's ingrained in our culture. And maybe you guys don't do that or didn't do that as kids. But I remember uh, many conversations and many people I still hear say, I swear to God, it's true. Well, don't do that. I swear on my mother's graves. I swear on my own head. I've even heard that. I swear on my kids. I've heard all of this. And so have you, I'm sure. All of that should be unnecessary. And if you look at it very simply, the reason why that should be unnecessary is you should be so full of truth that you don't have to convince anyone. And how do you do that? How do you make your reputation so that people don't make you swear that you're telling the truth? Well, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the 
life and you are a Christian, which means little Christ, and you're trying to disciple yourself after the teacher, if Jesus is the truth, then the truth is in me. And I should be radiating truth to the point where people don't have to wonder if I'm lying. People don't have to wonder if I'm going to follow through because my yes is going to be yes and my no is going to be no. My no isn't going to be no for people to hear and then I go off and sneak and do it anyway. But thinking back, and I'm going to pretend it wasn't that long ago because it was probably... 12 years or so uh, when I was doing student teaching, because that seems like, you know, a couple weeks ago, I worked uh, with a kid who we, he would talk all day long because he was a kid and he would tell you things. And honestly, I learned his tell. If he said, Mr. Johnson, I'm not going to lie to you. Everything that followed that was a lie. The more emphatically he had to swear that he was telling the truth, the more I was sure that what he was saying was absolutely false. I wonder why that is. But I think if you feel impulsed to swear by anything, to me now, because of that child, it sounds like you have a weak point or a weak commitment. Are you trying to convince yourself or are you trying to convince me? I swear I'll be there. Don't do that. Don't do that. And I'm a human being, as I'm sure I've mentioned before. I'm a very flawed human being. So I know over my lifetime, I've taken many oaths and sworn to many things that things would be accomplished, many of which did not happen. On four different occasions, I solemnly swore to defend this nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic, defend the Constitution of the United States, and to obey the orders of the President of the United States. Four times I have oathed or pledged that oath. Now here's my conundrum. And this is a personal conundrum, but I think it's worth bringing up because many of you probably have similar things. Maybe the exact same thing. At what point does that oath become invalid? Now, this is a personal thing I have to struggle with. It has nothing to do with you, but I'm just saying oaths seem to bear, bear a lot of weight, do they not? I don't even believe in oaths anymore. <laughs> Does it nullify the oaths of my past? So where I stand now is kind of in that Sergeant York weird shoes of I would definitely be willing to die for this country, but I will not kill for it. I love this country so much because it gives me the opportunity to worship God freely and to live as I please by worshiping God freely to varying levels, depending on where you are. But like I've said many times before, being patriotic and being a faithful Christian can't be held in the same hand. They just can't. You can be both. You can be both. You can admire the wonderful things in your homeland, sure. But recognize your primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Your primary duty is to the king of kings. One doesn't undo the other, and it shouldn't. It should. In the end, God wins. Everything else up to that, King Solomon probably would have described as vapor, depending on your Bible translation. Vanity, maybe. Some of them say vapor. Let's get back to, to this. I'm going to uh, Acts 5. I'm 
I know where X is, I promise. <laughs> Matthew marks Luke because he acts like a Roman. I got it. All right. Okay. Um, I'm in chapter five again. You notice all of these are chapter five. I couldn't believe it myself when I was putting this together. I'm like, chapter five, chapter five. Okay. Sounds like we've got a... Sounds like we've got a, a, a theme got a theme. It's fives. All right. In Acts 5, we actually have an unusual story. To me, it strikes me as being unusual. I'm sure you all know it. I'm just going to read from uh, 5 till probably around, uh, well, I'm not sure how much I'm going to read before I stop, but I know you know the story of Sapphira and his wife. No, Sapphira was his wife. <laughs> Sorry. Ananias, Ananias and his wife Sapphira. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and they kept back part of the proceeds, his wife's wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have lied not to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And when Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look at the feet of those who have buried your husband or at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carried her out and buried her with her husband. So great fear came on all the church and upon those who heard these things. This is a strange story, is it not? The uh, church is in this stage of living together and sharing all things, which is quite nice right? They're functioning as a body of Christ. They're living together. They're taking care of each other's needs. They're worshiping. They're doing all these things. And then a man and his wife decide to sell a possession because you can see if you read before where I started, people often sell their land and they bring it to the apostles, lay it at their feet, and they use it for everyone. Ananias and Sapphira decide to do this also, except they want to make sure they get their cut first. And I think the only reason why this is a problem, in fact, it's pretty much what it tells us in scripture is that they said they sold it for less than they did. And that this is all the money. I'm sure if they would have just came up and said, we have some money, but they wanted to look better than the deed they actually did. They wanted some glory out of it. And it isn't enough that the man decided to do this, but he also conspired with his wife. We're going to trick this community that we share all things with so that we can have a little extra. That is not truth. If you care more about your image than about your honesty, that is a problem. If you want to look righteous and holy, well, that's going to take a lot of energy. If you want to be righteous and holy, that just takes surrender. In fact, I used to read the story and feel bad for the people involved. 
until I realized that they were just lying. It didn't strike me that way at first. I'm like, well, why, why'd they have to sell their field? Why'd they have to do this or that? They didn't have to. They willfully stepped into a position to bring glory onto themselves. As far as I can tell, no one asked them to sell their field. No one asked them to give the money to the apostles. The problem is, is when they tell the apostles, this is what it's sold for. When they start lying to God. For their own glory. Sometimes I feel like we do that as Christians sometimes. We try to make ourselves more righteous than we are or to appear more righteous than we are. We're kind of out of the practice, but when I was a kid, you'd put on your very best clothes to go to church. You would, you would put on your absolute finest now, there's two reasons to do that. One is because God deserves your very best. That's a good, genuine reason to dress nice for church. The other one is so that you look like a good Christian. That's bad. If you have to worry that much about looking like a good Christian instead of just being yourself and that being a good Christian... I don't know. I'm not, I'm not bashing people who dress nice on Sunday, though, because like I said, we bring God our first fruits. And if that involves in your conviction dressing nice for church, I applaud that. Please do that. That's wonderful. If you have the right motivation. If you're doing it so that you look like a good Christian, you're probably off. You're probably off. Sometimes I have to talk myself out of dressing nicer than I do. And that sounds stupid. Because Mr. Johnson, the teacher, gets into character before he goes to work. I don't want to be in character up here. I think that comes through the cock side of my family, as we're kind of entertainers by nature. Probably why I feel inclined to tell jokes. That and I enjoy them. And hopefully God will use that. But it's really important to me that I don't become a character. Right? I don't want to be a character. I don't want you to be characters of who you are. I want us to be genuine Christian family. Right? The hardest place on earth to be a Christian is at home. Welcome home. We're supposed to be at home with one another. And I'm not telling you to fight over the fellowship meals and argue politics. Please don't. I'm just saying we're supposed to be a family. With all our blemishes, all our masks off, figurative masks, I mean, if you have a weak immune system, do what the doctor said. But, I mean, figuratively, we're not supposed to be hiding who we are. I'm sure there's still such a thing as too much information. You don't have to tell everyone everything. But we should be a family here. Moving on to James. James 5. I love the book of James. James is so completely convicting to me. James is a beautiful epistle. And some people have gone as far as to think that it disagrees with Paul's uh, doctrine of grace. It doesn't. They go together hand in hand. It's just like that scale I'm always bringing up. And I will until I die. Uh, <laughs> that... Truth and grace. Grace without truth condones all things. Truth without grace condemns everyone. It's a balance. And that's demonstrated for us when we have things like James and Paul preaching the same gospel. They're not disagreeing with each other. They're focusing on a different part.
I'm going to start at verse 7. Therefore be patient, brother, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for, for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Excuse me. Yeah. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, yes, lest you fall into judgment. There's a lot in chapter 5, and I find it interesting that James says this. Above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. Above all, don't do that. James is very functional Christianity. He's telling us all these really powerful things that we are to do and we aren't to do. James is a little blunt, honestly. But in the midst of telling us something as quoted as pure religion, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, right? He's telling us how to live as Christians. What warranted the above all is don't swear oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Live radiating truth to the point that people don't have to question whether you're blowing smoke or whether you're telling the truth. This is something that we struggle with because original sin, yes, but the very second thing they do, actually it's very hard to, to sort out what original sin is as humans and what the third and fourth and fifth one is because it, it came in a package. Original sin to me, to me, yeah, because it's so objective. When I think of original sin, what I think of, original sin of angels and humans is the same thing. They decided I will be as God. That was the original sin. Then they disobeyed. Then they blamed each other. And in the same breath, blamed God. And then they start lying. Lying is part of the package. Lies come so easily to us. Lies come so easily to us. And I'd like to think that we outgrow them, and majorly I believe we do when we get to adulthood. But then you, they kind of morph into fishing stories. It's this big. I swear. Hand to God. What are you doing, swearing? Sounds like you're swearing. And just because I'm curious and because I work with children, have any of you thought about using this particular teaching to get out of jury duty? I'm just curious. Because I've done jury duty a lot for someone my age, and I was just thinking... I wonder if this means I shouldn't do jury duty. And then I realized how selfish that was, so I'll leave it up to them. I'm not telling you not to do jury duty. What I'm saying is be so honest that your yes means yes, and your no means no, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. And wouldn't you rather show people the Father If given a choice through simple living, wouldn't you rather show people the Father? And that's all I have for you today. Um, hopefully I said something of value.
And if nothing else, I read some scripture, and God's word does not return void. Anyway, if you can do so without pain, would you stand with me? Father God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you are the truth. Father, I thank you for the efforts that so many people have put in to teaching me truth. Father, I pray that you would give us conviction and also ability to follow through. Pray that you would draw us closer to one another as a family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And that's from 1 Corinthians 7 7. And there's a very bizarre reason why I'm starting here. Um, the article in the Confession of Faith that I'm uh, using as the outline, uh, I believe it's called Family, Marriage, and, oh gosh, what's the other thing? <laughs> no, but it's Family and Marriage. It isn't Faith, or I would remember it, because that goes together in my head. But um, I just titled the, ser uh, the sermon Marriage. And that is going to be the main focus, but I just want to say something that rarely gets said at church. There's nothing wrong with being single. Paul actually said, if you can be as I am, it's actually better. So I know we treat singleness almost like a disease sometimes. It's really not supposed to be. Right? Single people are able to do things that married people with families can't do. They're a very important part of the church, and I don't want to leave them out. We'll push them to get married. We'll make jokes about, well, when are you going to find a nice young lady, huh? I believe the first time someone asked Amber and I if we were going to have children was our wedding reception. No joke. When are you guys going to have some kids? Not today. We have certain ideas of what it means to be a member of a church, but can I tell you that one of our founding leaders of the Christian church as we know it is Paul, and Paul was not married. In fact, he said, I wish that everybody could be like this, but then he went on to say more things because that's not for everyone either. Honestly, if I was single, I wouldn't be 40 because I'd be dead. <laughs> You don't believe me? Just ask my wife. I make some very strange decisions without a little bit of counsel. There's other people that are functioning very well and are 60 and have never been married and are quite content. Can you imagine such a world? But we need to make a place within the church or make sure there is a place within the church for single people. And it's not youth group. If you're 23 or 24 years old or maybe even younger and single, who are your people? Half of your friends are getting married, half haven't got the memo that they're too old for youth group. It's a very confusing time. But we need to make sure that we have a place for these people also. And that when you're handing out Christmas cards and stuff, maybe you stop giving it to their parents. Guy's 38 years old. You can give him a Christmas card on his own. I'm not saying that necessarily for our congregation. And I'm not bad-mouthing marriage. I just wanted to say it. I know a lot of widows and widowers who don't have plans to get married again right away. And maybe they don't want to. My grandfather never remarried. He had no desire to. Honestly, he grew much closer to God as a widower than he did as a married man to a fantastic Christian woman. So, I am speaking about marriage. I still am. But I wanted to preface it because I don't think we talk about it enough. Let's function within our, our context, but let's make sure that we're not forgetting about a huge 
percentage of our church, which is people that aren't married. God has called them as well. Was that too much in the beginning? I feel like I'm... <laughs> may have hit that too hard in the beginning. Anyway, um, so I'm in Genesis now. Genesis 2, 20 through 24. Which is fun because I actually had this on the schedule not knowing when I put this together months ago that I would be coming back from the Creation Museum and immediately be in Genesis. So it makes sense to me. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, Now this, this now, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, but they were not ashamed. There's a lot in there. One of which is a ridiculous joke, but it's how women got their name is the first thing Adam said when he saw Eve. Whoa, man. Right? See? Get somebody every time. Careful with that joke. It's an antique. Um, anyway, um, but it talks about um, um, a man leaving his father and mother and the two becoming one flesh. I think part of our problem with marriage, a huge part of our problem with marriage is we're so individualistic. We think about, well, me. That's the primary drive of just about everybody is very individual. It's all about me. But if the two become one, then me is also well, her, right? We have a tendency to look at marriage as being very uh, convenient. If it's convenient, I'm okay with it. When it's not convenient, well, I don't deserve this. None of us want what we deserve, I promise. And I don't know anyone, not a single person, who has frivolously divorced their spouse and ended up happier. Not one. I know people that came out of some pretty horrible situations and maybe it saved their life, but out of just the frivolous, no-fault divorce culture, I don't know a single person that's happier having gotten divorced. If they've made the choice. Also, verse 25, I think, is uh, pretty significant. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There's something very embarrassing and vulnerable about being exposed in front of somebody else. And we could say that that's because sin had not yet entered the world, so they didn't know they were naked. In fact, that comes up later, very quickly after that. But part of becoming one is you, you lose a lot of the guards you have around yourself, a lot of the pride. Your spouse sees things about you that no one else ever gets to see, for better or for worse. After you've been married for a while, you stop hiding the fact that you have the stomach flu from one another, little things like that. And you really uh, become much closer during those time periods. The next place I'm going is actually uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. If you're also getting the vibe that I'm trying to beat up on divorced people, that is also not my intent. There's an old adage, and it's extra biblical, but I'm going to say it anyway. Have you ever heard the expression, it takes two to tango? 
Sometimes your dance partner leaves and you don't have a choice. Sometimes something happens. I am not beating up on you. I will not beat up on you for things that are not within God's plan that have happened in your life. We all need redeeming. We all need God's grace. Okay, I'm at chapter 10. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and a multitude gathered to him again. And he was, or as he was accustomed, he taught them again. He being Jesus, right? I assume everyone knows that, but perhaps I should, I should mention that. He being Jesus. You also learn something about Jesus is that he's, and the multitudes gathered around him as he was accustomed to. And so he taught them again. <laughs> the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. So Moses allowed divorce because he knows people are hard of heart. This isn't because it's what God wanted for us. It's because people are hard of heart. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And again, I don't intend to beat up on you if you are divorced, have been divorced, or have married someone that's been divorced. I am not trying to beat up on you. But I would think it would go a long way for us as a Christian church or the American Christian culture to understand the gravity of marriage. It's supposed to be a lifelong covenant. It's supposed to be between a man and a woman for life. And part of the confusion I think that we have when we're trying to deal with issues about marriage is the fact that we're not living to any standards about marriage at all. And it becomes very hypocritical to say, you're doing it wrong when we're doing it wrong. And I'm not saying we should lower the bar. I'm saying we should raise the bar for ourselves. We should take the plank out of our own eye and then address the speck. Doesn't that seem like a reasonably biblical thing for us to do? Is if you're in a marriage, commit to that marriage. If you're looking for a spouse, pick the right spouse. Something that I've run into last week when I was preparing for this, and I apologize if this hurts anybody's ears. I know some people are more sensitive to subjects like this. So again, I'm not trying to be audacious and I'm not trying to be provocative or anything. But when I read about marriage in the Bible, a man took someone to be his wife. They probably didn't have a ceremony. What they did do was make a covenant before God, and then they became husband and wife. The state probably didn't sign up on it or anything, right? The only other way it really describes someone taking someone else is inappropriately, either as a prostitute or involuntarily, neither of which seems to be really smiled upon biblically. And if you think about it still, and again, I apologize if this is somewhere you don't want to be this morning, but I guess I'm driving. If you think about it, there really is only two ways for you to engage physically with someone. You have either taken them as a spouse or you've taken them as a prostitute. I think that's still true. Right? So you either need to treat it with the gravity of this is now my spouse or need to accept the fact that you've done something incredibly selfish 
something horrible and something that uh, is actually kind of abominable. So there's a gravity to intimate relationships that we don't teach in the church because it's icky to talk about and it's scary to talk about and you don't want to divide people by things that are so scary to talk about. I'm just going to say because I love you. I really do. And I'm not trying to beat up on you, but you need to understand the gravity of a situation. If you're being physically intimate with someone, you have either taken them as your spouse or you are taking them as a prostitute. There is no middle ground. And if I've hurt your feelings, I accept that. I would like the opportunity to talk more about it if you need to. That's not why I'm up here. But things trouble me. Things trouble me a lot. And we make false hierarchies about sin. But I think it's important to call sin, sin. I also think it's really important for us to live to this biblical principle that everyone is made in the image of God and I'm supposed to be ministering to people and to be loving people. Part of love is saying what needs to be said and also listening and not throwing people away because they're doing the wrong thing. Christians shoot our wounded. We've done it so much that it becomes almost expected. It's that, tr that truth and love balance, and I'll struggle with it till the day I die. Because truth without love condemns people. Love without truth condones everything you do. And there's a balance. God's truth is still going to be God's truth in the end. But he's called me to love. And that's probably not done with picketing and a bullhorn, and it's probably not done by... It's probably not done by shunning. I think it's done by example sometimes. If you want to preserve the sanctity of marriage, you make sure that you fix your marriage and that you have your kids see what marriage should look like and then your neighbors see what marriage should look like. Maybe they'll want what you have. Maybe they'll see what God designed for marriage. But like almost every other problem we have in our culture, the solution actually starts at a dinner table. And it's going to take time. In fact, I have a hard time thinking about any cultural issues that aren't going to be solved with people sitting down and talking about it. And then being patient enough to see through. Because it's going to take a lot of time. It's taken us hundreds if not thousands of years to desecrate the union of marriage to this point. I'm not going to preach a powerful sermon and change it. For those of us, though, that have agreed to live within this camp of being Bible-following Christians, though, we should expect each other to live it because we've agreed to do so. My atheist neighbor is under no obligation to follow Christian values. But we are. So what do I do for him? Well, I love him. And what do I do for the Christian that's going astray? Well, I love them too. But after a while, I'm supposed to consider them to be like a sinner or a tax collector. And how did Jesus treat them? He loved them. But in the context that they needed deliverance. I'm going to go ahead on to uh, Ephesians. Chapter 5. I believe I'm starting in verse uh, 22. And this is actually uh, kind of the bones of what marriage should look like. So the things I've already addressed today is that it's okay to be single. There is nothing wrong, forbidden, or horrible about being single. It doesn't make you a second-class Christian. Being single is okay. Being married 
is okay. Some of us can't function without being married, and that's okay too. All right. Verse 22, chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I've seen that part misused so much. I've seen people quote that verse by them by itself at their wife. And that is not appropriate unless you keep reading. It's not false. It is absolutely true. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Okay. Verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Now, this is where we have a shift. And it isn't a shift. It's the completion of this. So wives, subject yourselves to your husband. It doesn't mean be subservient to your husband. That's not the same word. But wives, be subject to your husbands. Allow him to be the head of the family. That doesn't mean don't make decisions. That doesn't mean your thoughts don't count. And the reason why I know that is because of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her and gave himself up for her. If you're a husband, you can probably think of things that you've done to give yourself up for the sake of your wife. All those things that it's, I guess it's not about me. Sure, we'll go to the whatever. Yes, that hanging plant looks beautiful. We should hang it in front of the house. When in reality, I don't care about the plant in front of my house, but my wife's face, when she looks at the plant, she thinks about it being in front of her house. That's amazing. And in that way, I care about that plant being in front of my house. And that's not because I'm an awesome husband. I don't know. It depends on the day. It really depends on the day. But I do know that God's call for a husband is to lead his family. If you're not leading your family and a woman is trying to submit to you, it's going to look a lot like a dumpster fire. Men are called to lead their family, but that doesn't mean tyrannically, but it means that they're responsible for their family. They're supposed to give themselves up for the good of their family. That he might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water and by the word. Spiritually, you're supposed to be the head of your family. That doesn't mean that you're going to be a better Bible scholar than your wife. It means that you're supposed to try to be a better Bible scholar than your wife. In my family, my wife's actually the smart one. I just happen to be the one that's educated. I have no problem admitting that. As far as I'm concerned, my wife's much smarter than me. And I know that. I'm still the head of the family. I'm still called to be the head of the house. When she asks me questions, she expects an answer. And there's a reason. I believe it's the design. And it isn't because she's incapable. And it isn't because she isn't a strong, independent person. Because she is. And it doesn't mean that she puts up with my shenanigans, because she doesn't. But when she asks me a question, she still expects me to be the leader of the family. And she always did, and I did not realize that for eight years. But I've been married for almost 16 now, so... Yeah. Another 10 years, and I'll be into passing grade territory by percentage. So that's not so bad. Grade's going up. Um, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and without blemish. 
So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Let his wife see that she respects her husband. There's a weird thing in the language here, too, and someone else pointed this out to me a couple of years ago, and I had never noticed it, that a man is told to love his wife as Christ loves the church. A woman's only told to respect her husband. That seems like an imbalance. <laughs> but that's what it says. That is what it says. And ladies, I hope you love your husbands. I really hope you do. It's difficult when you look at what the Bible says about things like marriage and try to think of a way to come at an issue that's so broad, so full, right? And I hope I've done okay at addressing it. But one of my big concerns with talking about marriage is that I water down what God says. That's my primary concern is to not do that. I don't want to take away from what marriage was intended to be. And if you read our Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective, 1995, I would say I affirm what it says. From what I read in Scripture, marriage is intended to be one man and one woman for life. Because that's the way our Savior seems to describe it. That's the way the Bible supports it. Now, on the flip side, for people who have been divorced, for people who have gone through some things, for people who have had tragic stuff happen within their marriage and their lives, I don't want to kick you when you're down. I don't want to kick you when you're down. We have a responsibility to live everything that we know to live, that we are aware of. Anything that we have felt the conviction of, anything that we're able to read from Scripture, we have a responsibility to live it out. But my call to love people, it never goes away. My call to serve people doesn't go away. It becomes a very difficult balance. I don't know any of us who don't know people that are doing something that we know biblically to be incorrect. I don't know any of us that could honestly say that, that we don't love somebody, have people in our lives that are doing something biblically incorrect. Oftentimes we take responsibility for that. Well, I suppose I taught them that. Or I actually advised them to do that. Or something like that. There is a point, though, where you no longer can take responsibility for another human being's choices. And finding a ground where you are loving and supportive of a person without, without being incredibly supportive of something that you believe to be wrong will always be difficult. It's so much easier just to write the person off. If you're looking for easy, Christianity isn't the place to find it. It would be easier. That's not what God calls us to. It's not what God calls us to at all. If you want easy Christianity, don't follow it. And life will lose meaning. And you'll become insecure about everything. Or you can dig into the truth of God 
And you can hope to show people the truth of God by the way we live and the way we speak to one another and the way that we pick each other up. And as soon as I figure out how to do that effectively, I'll be telling you examples. But it's something we're all going to struggle with. Because we're weak. But what's excellent is God is not weak. And God is not strong. And there is one who loves us unconditionally. And there's one who was willing to die for us. And we can take hope in that. Because if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know that greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. And it will give you the strength to love the people that hurt you. And will give you the strength to worry less about how people feel about you. Or worry if someone is judging you for the way you feel called to reach out. At the end of the day, though, this all has to be for the glory of God. All of it. How are you going to glorify God in your marriage? How are you going to glorify God in the way you react to your neighbors? How are you going to glorify in the midst glorify God in the midst of sinners? How are we going to react to one another when we stumble, when we fall down, or when we just turn and flat out run? How are we going to react to those people as well? How are we going to react to our brothers and sisters who are in pain because they're dealing with these issues? One of the most painful things I've ever had to do is explain to someone I love that I think they're a sinner even though I love them. It's a dear friend of mine. And because I had been silent on an issue, they thought I agreed with them. And I had to explain to them that I love them, but I feel that they're incorrect. And I know it didn't go as well as I wanted it to. But the world has enough liars, and I don't want to be one anymore. And I love that person just as much. I enjoy seeing them just as much as I ever did, but I know I hurt them. And I'm not sorry. That's one of the only times I've ever offended somebody where I knew I was right. But I also made sure they knew I loved them. And that I didn't choose to pick something to hurt them with. But like I said, the world has enough hypocrites. The world has enough liars. I think as a church, though, when we see a young couple get married, be supportive. Just be supportive. Try to find the things that they're doing well and affirm it. Give them the opportunity to hang out with you. If you're an older couple that has figured out a few things over a long period of time, we could actually probably use the advice. And I'm saying we like I'm still young. I just told you I was, I've been married 16 years. There's a lot of people in this church that have been married for a couple of years. I'm not saying that their marriages are fantastic. I'm not saying their marriages are bad, but I'm just saying when you hang out with older people, you see some things that maybe you've never thought of doing or some things you know you're definitely never going to do. Because that's how examples work. But I think as a community, we could do a lot to build our marriages within the church. I think we could do a lot to build our community of believers. I think that's all I have today. And I hope I said something worth hearing. I don't know. I do know that this has been emotionally difficult on me because when I was preparing this, it was just very draining for me. Trying to find... Actually, just trying to fight my way through feelings. Because some of the most dynamic people, dynamic Christian people I know, have been married more than once. Or have married someone who has been married more than once. 
and so many dynamic Christian people I know are currently single because they're divorced or whatever. And all that's good and dandy. And that's a testament to the grace and glory of God. Because he restores us and he rebuilds us and he uses us despite our flaws. But I still want to be faithful to what God says marriage is and is intended to be. Just because we mess up and God is still good doesn't change what God's intention was. Anyway, if you can do so without pain, would you stand with me? Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness, to your faithfulness to a broken people, for your love for us, even when we fall down, that while we are yet sinners, you died for us. Father, I praise you for the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would bless our congregation. I pray that the truth of your words would touch us, would reach us, would comfort us, but would also convict us. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to pick each other up, that we would be quick to restore one another, that we would be quick to forgive. Father God, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, you can be seated now.